You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. All right. So thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. Um, it's nice to see that there are some of you who think that it's way more romantic to talk about how we can create a sustainable future for the world than going out on a date. Um, so I appreciate you all for coming. Um, and before we kick things off, um, just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we stand. Um, so there's actually two language groups in this region where we are here. So the Boon Wurrung and the Woi Wurrung or Wurundjeri people are the two language groups here. And it's not quite 100% sure who's got what and it's constantly flowing and changing. So I just thought it makes sense to kind of acknowledge and respect both of the traditional owners. Um, literally, I believe the river was actually div the dividing um, piece. So one side was Wurundjeri, one side was Boon Wurrung. So just thought I'd pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Um, I think that there is a lot that can be learned and incorporated from a biodesign perspective and designing for a pluriversal future from the First Nations people of Australia. And I'm excited to see how that can evolve and emerge into the future. Um, so for those who don't know me, hello, my name's Sam. I'm one of the co-founders of CoLabs Melbourne. So we are a transdisciplinary innovation hub and biotech co-working lab, uh, currently based in Brunswick. We've got a site opening up in Monash soon as well. Um, and we're kind of looking at heading up to Sydney too. Um, so the whole point there is, you know, we started sort of with a question, like how do we catalyze the transition to a circular, bio-based, regenerative and equitable economy? Um, and, and what ways in which we can learn from nature to try and create new patterns and processes that can replace some of the outdated modes in which we do business and industry. Um, and it turns out there isn't many biodesign organizations in Australia. Um, so we were actually looking at releasing a report on the state of biodesign in Australia last year. And we kind of found out there's like three, com four companies maybe, but it's kind of in the last year or two has really developed. And I guess the reason why we're looking at hosting these sort of events and running a series of talks at M Pavilion is because, um, sure, we have a vested interest. We love biodesign, but I do think that there is a lot that we can learn and we have a really fertile ground and amazing teachers and lecturers that we have here on the panel tonight who are doing amazing things on teaching that next generation of designers um, through a transdisciplinary sort of framework. So. Yes, it's exciting to be able to bring you all together and um, we also co-authored co a paper that we're just about to publish on designing for coexistence. So we might even have a bit of a chat about that later on as well because that weaves really nicely into the, into the discourse. Um, that's enough for me talking for the moment. Feel free, if you'd like to all introduce yourselves, um, yeah, more than welcome to left, right to left, left to right. Hello. My name is Kyung Joo Chan. I'm a, a program coordinator for spatial design at Monash, 
and I have my design practice little wonder. My background is industrial design, um, and I have no I, uh, I I have a very poor knowledge in biology. I was very very bad at biology when I was in high school, so I don't know why I am actually working with biomaterials, but um, it's fascinating. Um, my in research interest is mainly the relationship between materials, uh, environments, and uh, the maker, the designer. Nina, would you like to go next? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Nina Williams. I'm a lecturer in cultural geography, so I'm actually not a designer, but I'm approaching biodesign in terms of the kind of ideas it gives us. So my research more broadly is interested in creative practices, design obviously, um, visual arts, literature, and how they can change the way that we relate to the world, basically. Um, and yeah, I guess in terms of biodesign, I've been kind of interested not so much in the, in the kind of products or the solutions it presents to us necessarily, but the ideas it gives us of how else we could relate to the natural world. Um, so that's kind of my approach, bringing, bringing some theoretical thoughts to the paper and our conversations. <laughs> and uh, hello everybody, my name is uh, Olivier Kotsaftis, you can call me Oli, I'm French. Um, I am a senior lecturer at RMIT University School of Design here in Melbourne, and my practice is interested into the, the materiality, aesthetic, ethics and politics of uh, sustainability in the 21st century. And uh, um, basically, like in a more like concrete way, I'm interested in developing pathways towards like uh, the circular economy uh, and regenerative design. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys, for the intro. Um, just a quick show of hands here. Um, who's heard of biodesign or is aware of like the processes or has a biology background? Does anyone have a biology background or aware of biodesign? Uh, there's a few. Okay. Um, that's great. This is this makes it even more exciting for us because a lot of the time when we talk about this stuff, you can go really, really deep into all of these sort of things. But sometimes what's the most exciting is actually getting to expose people to a new field or a new ideas and, and how they can potentially be implemented in the world. So um, given that, um, we'll start at the very start. So maybe um, it would be nice for us to um, have a bit of a discussion around what we mean when we say biodesign. Because there's a lot of bio words out there. There's biomimicry, biodesign, biophilic architecture. So maybe it might be nice to be able to give some framing to the word that we're using and, and, and then how that can then, hopefully that can then inform the rest of the conversation. Is there anyone that would like to start? I can give it a crack. <laughs> Uh, I don't think there's one definition that is time, and that's why potentially it's a bit confusing. And I, uh, on top of having many definitions, the definitions are evolving and quite rapidly. So depending on who you talk to, you might hear different things. Uh, so biodesign, like if you look at, like if you just Google biodesign, you most likely will find that biodesign is talked about in the medical sense for like developing like a product for human health. Uh, but it's way more than that. Um, if you were Googling like Biodesign plus Academia, you might find out there's a lot of experiments about biomaterials at the moment. Like what are we, what's the material palette of tomorrow? But um, it's changing again like very rapidly, even in Academia. And now it's about our relationship with nature. It's about uh, uh, the way we design sustainable spaces and objects. It's about um, how we relate even to each other. So I think it's a, it's a very evolving definition. 
and potentially it's a bit too early to pinpoint exactly what it is because I think it needs to be a space that is emerging and we need to let it grow naturally. I like that. Always with the biological metaphors. Um, but I, I think that's a really important way of looking at it and kind of almost highlights the, the, the reason why you can't pin it down is that it's transdisciplinary by nature. You know, we're, we're dealing with social systems, biological systems, both on a micro, macro and meso level. So when we're speaking about biodesign, yeah, depending on who you talk to and depending on what their field of background is, they'll come to it from a totally different perspective. So I know Nina, you're coming from like a, a geography perspective and, and but what you bring to it is, is not just the geography, obviously. It's, it's looking, as you said, the way in which we relate to nature. And I'd be curious to see like, how does that like how does that for you when we're thinking biodesign what does that and you're mentioning okay so biodesign and how it relates to our worldview would that be correct or how we relate to biodesign as a process like what does it mean for you so i guess in terms of biodesign my kind of understanding of the sort of broad definitions would be around integrating biological systems into kind of design processes um, but equally, there seems to be kind of an increasing pushback on that being a kind of technological innovation. Um, and so some of the ideas we've really been discussing in the, the paper that Sam mentioned we've been working on is how we can think about biodesign as more a process of learning from the kind of systems that are already working in the world around us um, as potentially being more regenerative or sustainable. Um, in terms of how that influences, I guess, as I mentioned in the introductions, I suppose I'm interested in how the practices itself of biodesigners, and my research has tended to focus on textile, biodesigners in textile, so using things like mycelium um, or the SCOBY, the kind of layer you get at the top of kombucha as an alternative leather, um, or using kind of um, bacteria to dye textiles in, instead of synthetic or petrochemical based dyes. How rather than then just kind of appearing more sustainable, actually they change the way that we kind of think about our relationship to non-human things, whether that's bacteria. Can we live more harmoniously, I guess? Although, again, we've kind of thought critically about ideas of what harmonious means, but can we live more harmoniously with some of those um, non-human organisms? Um, and so I guess that's in terms of the, the effect on our worldview of what I've been interested in. So in summary, it's kind of like, how do we ensure we don't repeat the same patterns and processes of like, let's say colonialism or extractionism, but how do we ensure that we're not doing that with other living systems? Like, uh, you know, we're, we're moving away from doing that to humans, but like, is it okay or not okay to do that to other living systems? And it's obviously a very gray, gray area to some extent. Um, you know, all life requires other life as food and fuel to be able to survive and thrive. So there is this dynamic interrelated nature that comes with living organisms. Oh gosh, there we go, we're back. Um, but I mean, Guangzhou, your, your practice very much incorporates the living organism into um, the art pieces. So maybe it would be interesting to hear um, some of the projects that you're working on and, and how you've related biodesign to your practice. I guess biodesign, um, um, amongst all the definitions or maybe interpretation of the biodesign that we heard, um, 
perhaps one that resonates with me most is about working with alive things, living things. And in that sense, it's not necessarily about uh, designing a product, but it is about um, looking at an ecology and then trying to find a position uh, of a particular uh, product or objects or architecture uh, as a part of a system. So in that sense, that's how I kind of um, approach the biodesign. But interesting thing is that we actually have been doing this for many, many, many years in ancient times that we always work with the living things from farming um, to medicine to uh, any uh, daily things that uh, we've used the living things. It's just that now the technology allows us to manipulate uh, the really, really tiny, small scale level. So DNA, we can actually manipulate to perform in a way that we intend or we, uh, a purpose of serving in, uh, um, particular things. But I guess what um, I'm very cautious about uh, with while I'm w while working with a living material is not to repeat the same mistake that technology, um, not relying on the technology itself to solve a problem, um, but also um, uh, really highlighting that living material itself, it has its own agency, it has its own memory, it has its own behavior, uh, it doesn't sometimes behave as we want to control. So there's a lot of issues and dilemmas and then the questions coming up. Um, as a designer who's trained to control things, we're control freaks, um, and expect very particular outcome from the beginning. But because while uh, the, bi the materials that are alive um, it, you, somehow I had to shift all my practice, my, my approaches, so that it became a little bit more experimental and not really knowing what the end outcome might be uh, or not to control it too much and then really working with the material. And the w material itself become um, uh, more of an author, co-author with me. So then my tendency is to really try to uh, uh, find out how it behaves, and then foster and create a foundation for that material to behave how it wants to behave. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting how, um, despite coming from multiple disciplines, we kind of all tend to, there's like a basin of attraction that pulls us in around thinking about it from a systemic lens and how it all interrelates. And I think it's really nice to see that kind of, that pattern of thinking in this sort of space because it is so important like you know we have some amazing companies that are that are out here in Australia doing bio-based products and solutions and there are also quite a few overseas that um, when you look at them like on paper it sounds great it's like oh that's that's awesome we're looking at doing a like a bio-based material to create a plastic alternative but then you you look at the ingredient list and there is um, uh, there's PU-based, like polyurethane, you know, in there and then suddenly it can't even be recycled. It has to be thrown out and it doesn't break down very well. So there's a lot of notions of having to think of the second, third and fourth order effects when we're, you know, looking at redesigning the entire processes that we're looking at doing um, at an industrial level. Um, but on that note, is there any projects um, 
that anyone's working on currently um, that they'd like to discuss in terms of like how we can use biodesign to create a more sustainable um, product or system? Yeah, okay, I'll try that again. <laughs> That's a big question. Um, if you look at the, at the world around us, um, pretty much everything is unsustainable. Uh, even the, the seats we're sitting on, the, this table, our clothes. Um, and everything is, a, is in need to be redesigned with a new material palette in order to, to move towards like a, a more sustainable ways of living. Um, so in that regard, there's a, there's a lot of us that are trying to develop this new material palette of tomorrow. Uh, how can we make things that are uh, non-polluting, uh, healthy for the environment, but also for human health, uh, and that do not create any ecological impact? And uh, the more you research into that space, the more you realize it's actually quite hard to do, because um, there's no silver bullet to save the environment. Everything has some kind of impact uh, one way or another. So for example, like in terms of plastics, which is really like a, one of the, the biggest issues of our time, um, there's a, a French chemist actually in 1926 that came up with like a, a new formula, which is called PHBV. Forget about that name, doesn't make any, uh, doesn't change anything. Uh, and it's made out of uh, organic waste um, and you can create like a, this plastic that you can mold or, or shape into any objects that we can. Uh, and for like the last maybe like uh, almost 100 years now, uh, people have been trying to use this material in design and the oil lobby is very strong and it was like a, a lot of uh, pressure to like maintain the status quo in which we live in. Nowadays, obviously, it was the environmental pressure that we're, uh, that we're constantly feeling through uh, extreme weather patterns and everything. Um, things, people are a lot more receptive to these new materials. Uh, but then, like, uh, the more research we do in this kind of material, the more we realize that they're not harmless neither. So, for example, this material, PHBV, has just gone shown that it actually is kind of toxic for the bacteria uh, where it decomposes in the field. Uh, is it better than traditional oil-based plastic? For sure. Should we move to it? For sure. But we need to understand as well that none of, it, none of this is like a, a, a magic material that's going to save everything. At the end of the day, it's also about solving like our issues of uh, overconsumption. Uh, um, so it's like the questions about degrowth. It's, uh, everything is linked together in this like, systemic conversation that we're talking about. Uh, so for my own practice, personally, I'm actually working with this material PHBV. And I'm trying to like uh, uh, mixing it with uh, other materials coming from a natural... Um, matter in order to create different properties and, and see what we can do with it. So um, uh, I'm working at the moment with like a, well, I, the project's over, but like we worked with like a, a big supermarket chain to try to see if we can like change just like the basic, most basic packaging and could we make that more sustainable? Um, like um, there's obviously an opportunity, but like what is the desire of the corporation that we work with in order to move forward with it in a context where they're not incentivized to do so still so that's a massive issue as well um, and then uh, I also like running another project at the moment with a hospital uh, to create like scrubs that are actually fully biodegradable and uh, and uh, would leave no trace into the environment so at the moment we're working into creating a textile uh, out of food waste food waste that's the big vision uh, it's called like bacterial cellulose uh, we're not there yet. There's still like a few years of prototyping in order to get there. But step by step, we're getting closer to the to this goal. I'm gonna hand over to the other person. Wangji, would you like to speak to the work you've been doing with K5? Yes. Um, it, 
what all is doing is sounds sounds so amazing, and I think it's possible because you are working with, and then you you have a biology background, and uh, understand the, all the science behind it. I don't, so <laughs> and so my approach is a little bit more towards um, uh, uh, consumer products like furniture, for example. So I work with a local uh, furniture company called K Five, uh, which. Um, commissioned uh, me and my students at Monash to design um, uh, furniture made of made of mycelium and uh, any how many of you know what mycelium is one two maybe few okay mycelium is basically the root structure it's not a root but root stru root structure of mushroom so mushroom is a fruit from the mycelium and mycelium is just everywhere underground actually transit um, uh, carrying all the information and nutrients between the trees and uh, the grass and the mycelium is the first thing that actually eats the dead things um, and we can grow products uh, the the wonderful thing about mycelium property is that it's very light grows very fast it can be moldable and it it is uh, naturally water resistant and fire resistant um, so it, it, it took um, an interest of designers and architects very fast. So there are uh, companies that produce architectural insulation out of mycelium. And then there are some tiles, wall tiles, uh, because it's, it has a great acoustic properties. It's very porous, so acoustically very good. Um, so we designed, we, uh, we actually uh, tried to design acoustic uh, furniture, so came up with uh, some tiles and lightings and uh, freestanding div uh, space divide dividers. And we are at the stage of now planning for a commercialization. The biggest challenge that we have, designing with mycelium isn't that difficult. Um, yet, the biggest challenge is actually uh, commercialization of it at the consumer level because the aesthetics of this material is very, very different from what we are used to. Um, we're used to the materials that, for example, the surfaces does not change. Um, it changes actually from, uh, by the UV, for example, uh, uh, very, very gradually, but you don't really see that change very fast. You hardly recognize, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years, um, maybe if you abuse the material, you see the scars and, and so on. But mycelium uh, surface can change within a day, within days or weeks, depending on the light condition, depending on the moisture, depending on the, all the environmental condition. Thus, it, 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 in a way, I talked about the control, reliability, the control, uh, and then all that stuff that we expect from plastics, glass, steel, uh, is not really, it's not deliverable by mycelium. We can with all kinds of chemical treatments. <laughs> um, but if we leave it as, as, an, as it, uh, a natural material, then the aesthetic experience that we have, the smell, the sight, the touch, uh, everything is very, very different from conventional material. So that's where we are really facing a challenge um, from because all this big change is not going to happen in the lab or designer's studio. It happens in a consumer level. 
Yeah, I, I kind of agree. Hence the uh, biotech co-working lab where we try and help um, people commercialize products. Um, and I mean, from our end, yeah, that's that's a massive issue that, that we've seen both internationally and in Australia is that, first of all, you're recreating entire industries that have had hundreds or thousands of years um, to grow and develop and create and finesse and evolve and adapt to be able to produce things at scale really damn cost effectively. Um, so that's a, a big issue we face when we're working with brand new materials that can't always be dropped into a, an existing like, process or way of making things. Um, and so there has to, yeah, and it's one of those things that we're so used to, like a certain performance, as you were saying, or a certain way of functioning. And these are things that into the future we might have to, I guess, reconsider or, or start to appreciate things that are designed for decomposition rather than um, something that's stable and maintains for a long period of time. Um, in terms of some of the projects that we have happening in the lab, um, look, biodesign is such an interesting word. Do I, do I count people trying to grow meat in the lab to replace um, agriculture as biodesign? We have you know, two companies that are doing um, cellular agriculture, so um, cultured meat. Um, so they're looking at growing um, what you would say would be like a beef product or a lamb product, but growing it in the lab. Um, and you can essentially from stem cell grow this to be exactly the sort of nutrient contents that you would want for food. Um, at, with Hypothetically with a similar sort of taste profile. Um, again, it's not a direct replacement for a, a Wagyu steak. You know, it's a totally different product category, but it is an interesting, you know, thought process that, you know, biodesign can be something that you can eat as well. Um, We've also had uh, Great Wrap has worked in the lab for a little while, so they're working on compostable cling wrap. Um, so we were helping them with experimenting with uh, a new form of um, formula to be able to help make their pallet wrapping, because pallet wrapping versus normal wrapping is a very different process. Um, there's a couple of people doing commercial kelp farms um, at the lab as well. We're actually helping Agus, so one of um, Ollie's former student groups um, that entered the biodesign challenge, we're helping them with creating a non-woven fiber from um, Kambungai, which is a, a native, uh, I think it's a bulrush. Yeah, has a really high um, cellulose content, I think, or starch in the roots, which means you can just kind of like, hopefully, we, we don't actually know, we're actually helping them do that right now. Um, sort of like pulverizing it and creating a non-woven fiber. Um, and then we have a alternative leather company that's um, looking at starting in the next week. Um, so using um, cellulite, uh, not cellulite, using um, agricultural waste to be able to create uh, a leather alternative. So there are a lot of things that can be done. Um, and I guess it's about looking at, I think a really big foundational thing um, is looking at the at the very smallest level and how that fractally scales out. So like green chemistry is a really important thing to be paying attention to when looking at designing and creating things. Like, so looking at nature as model and mentor and being like, how, how do shellfish make shells in ambient temperature and make a really durable thing that can last for an extended period of time without like a forge? You know, how, how, do, how do mollusks make really, really sticky stuff that allows them to stick onto a rock. There are all of these things that happen in nature that if we just took the time to look and observe and, and inquire, maybe we could learn to redesign the way in which we create things. But again, it's not going to be the same patterns and processes that we're currently used to. Um, so it will be interesting sort of seeing how this begins to emerge in the future. Um, 
There's quite a few good books as well I've got down here on biomimicry and biodesign. So if anyone wants to have a look afterwards, you're more than welcome. Um, some of them were even referenced in our paper. Um, to bring this back to, let's say, um, a more environmental or social perspective, um, Nina, how do, you, how do you think, when we look at biodesign, how do you think the... How can we measure the impact? Like, you know, something that Oli talked about before. What are your thoughts around measuring the impact of these things in the environment? And how do we, like, what are the challenges that we face when trying to implement biodesign and how it interfaces with the environment? I guess, I think it very much so. I mean, as we've been discussing so far, the kind of discourses or the way in which biodesign is often presenting itself as is as producing more sustainable alternatives to kind of petrochemical based materials or very water intensive materials or energy intensive materials. Um, and I guess as, as kind of emerging from the conversation we've just been having, simply replacing those with kind of mycelium or this alternative plastics or things used in sugar um, or bacteria doesn't necessarily actually produce a more sustainable alternative if we use that that kind of industrial scaled up level so i think the real challenge and it's not one that i've got <laughs> a proper answer to is how can we actually use biodesign and these kind of experimental or speculative relationships that designers are um, taking part in with kind of natural systems how can we use those as an opportunity to rethink that kind of hyper consumerist lifestyle um, one which has kind of has a detrimental impact on the environment because of how much resources it requires. Um, and potentially as also, as Jinju is kind of explaining, introduce us to alternative aesthetics or alternative ways of appreciating kind of different looks. And those are the kind of key, I guess, social and environmental challenges and demonstrate the importance of actually understanding those together rather than kind of seeing them as distinct and as issues that we can look at separately we need to we can't kind of work on the environmental issues of, of the kind of e extractive design traditions without also understanding some of those social and cultural um, barriers or um, challenges that need to be overcome in order to kind of enable that to be more a more sustainable or regenerative alternative so if I was going to paraphrase that, it's thinking about the worldview from which we are perceiving and designing and how that, how what we, like, so we're essentially creating things for a system currently exactly as the system wants it, but it's actually creating results that no one necessarily wants. So you're sort of saying that actually it might be a, almost like a redesigning of the way in which we perceive reality and the material objects within our space and, and that that's kind of like the thing that we're going to have to start to address in the not too distant future. Yeah, I guess like, you know, those sort of, yeah, thinking about the kind of agency of non-human things as having a capacity um, to do things in the world regardless of what we see, trying to kind of push back on the very anthropocentric idea we have of ourselves as humans as kind of superior to and in control of the environments around us. And um, I think those are the worldviews that biodesign is really interesting for pushing back on precisely because of these ideas of, you know, there's this unruly nature which you're suddenly witness to and you're not in control of. 
Um, so those are the things that I think are potentially very exciting around how biodesign shifts our worldviews there. So I think another really important thing, this is going to be a, a bit of a tangential sort of um, piece to bring out a conversation which I think will be interesting is um, I think we've kind of also noted that the process of innovation, it it's not necessarily going to be revolutionary, it's going to be evolutionary and it might be worth sort of like a good framework that I've come across is the like the three horizons framework for innovation, sort of saying that, um, you know, this PHB um, material might be a really good alternative to what we're currently using. You know, it's 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 the less bad, but it might help us get towards that. Yeah, like so. So it's like the horizon two that gets us away from business as usual, uh, but then at the same time we need to be working on like let's say the horizon three, which is a more sustainable or res regenerative system, but that needs to be built from the ground up. So that's kind of like um, I can't think of a material off the top of my head, let's say like a SCOBY leather, like getting that to be able to perform on the same level as as um, as uh, regular leather. So that's going to take a lot longer, but it's good to have something in the interim that sort of crosses that bridge. Would that be sort of an accurate interpretation of where we're trying to go with biodesign at the moment? It's not that we're trying to completely change everything overnight. It's more of a, a gradual interplay of multiple different like material ecologies I don't know, Oli, is there anything you'd like to add to that? That's exactly that. And I think biodesign cannot be dissociated from the, the broader conversation, which is transition to circular and regenerative economies. Uh, like, uh, the, obviously, we all know like the way we live is uh, highly unsustainable, and we cannot continue the way we do. We're seeing the impact of this every single day in our, in our lives, or we turn a blind eye to it. Um, but biodesign is just a tool, right? Um, it's the same way, like if you want to improve your wellness, you might go to the gym. So you might use weights. It's a tool. Uh, biodesign is a tool to achieve like sustainable futures, but it's not the only one. And, uh, and, and, and it's not like fully ready yet. But as you said, like we shouldn't stop ourselves from using it because at this point in time, that's what we have best. Like this is the best tool potentially that we have so far, but it still needs like a, there's room for improvement, you know, to reach this horizon two and this horizon three that are yet to be defined. Um, on that note, is there any way in which consumers can play a role in supporting biodesign? Does anyone feel like contributing to that? Is it, is it, would it be through, let's say, asking or requesting for more sustainable materials or asking for an LCA on and checking out what materials are being used currently? Or like, is there a way in which people can get involved if they want to get hand, their hands dirty and playing with biomaterials? Like, where do you, where do you go to, to learn about this stuff or to try and experiment with this sort of stuff? Is there, is there many places in Australia? <laughs> Aside from collabs, um, but like, no, seriously, because like if we're looking at trying to educate the next generation of designers and people who are going to be creating things, um, I, I, I don't know any courses in specifically in biodesign at any universities in Australia at the moment. Is there anything that I know that Ollie, you're working on Summit? Well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't like to say that I teach biodesign because it's much broader than that. Like I use biodesign as a tool in my studios and my education. I use it in my practice. I use it in my engagement. Uh, but it's not the only tool that I have in the toolbox. And uh, I, I think like 
Kyunju, you're potentially uh, the same. Like you obviously have like all your special design background, have architecture background. Like we bring all of this to the work, and biodesign is just one way to achieve sustainable futures. But there's others. I mean, like um, there's this amazing professor in the UK that talks about living architecture. Uh, it's kind of like related to biodesign, but it's actually using living things in the work itself. So for example, like a, a, an organic tree that is potentially cleaning the air 100 times more efficiently than a natural tree does. Uh, There's like a, a studio in London called Ecologic Studio that, that works on these kind of things. It's kind of amazing. Um, so biodesign sometimes is associated with inert material. That's way bigger than this. But biodesign also is not the only tool that we can use in order to achieve all the sustainable futures. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um and something that would be worth, I guess, kind of because we, we talked about it in the paper as well, is that um, bio-inspired design doesn't have to just be about a physical material object. You know, there is redesigning patterns and processes and ways of relating to other humans that can be inspired by the ways in which other organisms relate to one another. We can look at, you know, more effective and innovative ways of relating to ecological systems from like a social perspective as well. So it's when, when we're sort of speaking about biodesign, it, it, yeah, the scale of it can really change dramatically depending on your area of interest. And um, I think that's another uh, kind of a really, again, it make, what makes it hard to pin down and difficult and complex to communicate is that it is constantly adapting, evolving. Um, in a way, I think it's happening already in the, in the uh, consumer level because, for example, let's say, let's see a vegetarian the, the more and the more and more people are aware of the problems with the uh, producing meat and so people are turning to be vegetarian and then there are meat that are not based on you know meat but plant-based meat and i think that that kind of in a way if we want to really call it biodesign maybe it is kind of included in there and so people are more becoming conscious of um their what they are choosing but on the other level is also a student uh students are learning um in institutions Mel in melbourne and sydney both um most institutions are engaged with uh, teaching uh, design based on the circular economy and uh, biodesign or ecology, if you will. And these students now go uh, have a chance to be more entrepreneurial. So they don't necessarily have to be employed by the traditional architectural or interior design or product design companies. Now they, I see my students actually employed by um, those uh, manufacture and design companies that work with uh, all these biomaterials. And then they are also now graduates are thinking about setting up their own companies based on mycelium. So I think the education is actually um, really fostering the change that that is slow, but it, it starts from there and then gradually expand to perhaps the, the public, the consumer uh, level. Yes. It's kind of interesting, I think, uh, an interesting issue that still remains, though, is how some of those alternative products, I guess, cannot just be like a, a fill-in replacement. How, going back to some of those broader conversations, they, yeah, challenge the kind of idea that we should have materials or objects always <laughs> available to us. But I think there's lots of different ways of 
of doing that like the you know the concept of living architecture or there's a textile designer who kind of talks about uh, who's created a dress which has kind of got algae in it and so it photosynthesizes and you have to like put it out in the sun for it to work so the idea is like you know you you start taking care of your clothes like you would a plant or something but then at the other end of the <laughs> of the scale there's a dutch um, designer also using mycelium and talks about the way in which um, it, it use it precisely because it does biodegrade very quickly and so says like you know how maybe maybe we should be working towards a model of fast fashion and have things which can just kind of break down but it's not a problem so there's this still all these kind of big questions open in the air around like what do consumers actually want <laughs> do they want to take care of their clothes like a plant and have them last a long time or do they want these things which kind of enable them to still maintain that kind of process of consumption that a lot of people in the world have got used to can i continue on that conversation of awareness like you'd started before yeah. yeah so it's kind of interesting because like things are changing so 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 fast so like awareness i don't think is an issue anymore and especially not in the in the field of like uh, in, in governmental sectors and industry sectors so over the last couple of years maybe there was literally hundreds of millions of dollars invested into biodesign industry like all of the european across it like there's like funding everywhere if you look for it uh Awareness within general population is rising as well. The problem, I think, is more like a behavioral crisis and just like change is hard. And so like um, uh, um, teaching like teaching people how to change behavior is a lot harder than teaching them that something exists. And I think like once we reach that phase, like potentially we'll see more impact. And I don't know how to do that. That's the biggest nut to crack. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, I guess that's why I hate having to bring it back to a, um, what I do for work, but I, I guess it's important given that it's biodesign. Um, yeah, I feel like it's a really important thing to acknowledge like that there's, there has to be the education and the like, awareness that leads to education, which leads to research, which leads to innovation. And it's like an autocatalytic set and you need to be able to support and nurture that at every stage for it to actually come to life, for these ideas to go from ideation to actualization. Um, and I think that you're right, there's so much money flying about for all of this stuff. I mean, we're a government-funded organization. We got all our money to be able to build our lab from the Victorian government. Thank you. Um, and yeah, there's so much money going. So one of the startups, Val, who's just been, who's in our lab, you know, they just raised $75 million for their cult, like cultivated meat. Um, Great Wrap just raised, I think, I can't, was it 15? 15 million or something there's there's a lot of money flying around from investors looking to invest in new alternatives um that can replace some of the ones that we're currently working on i mean even recently there was two i think silo a company doing psilocybin based research like that's kind of technically falls under biodesign they're looking at you know taking something from nature and then creating a like a a pharmaceutical from it um so there there's it again it's like is that biodesign you know there, there are people designing with biology so um yeah there are a lot of fascinating things going on and floating around at the moment and i think that um yeah we're i just can't wait to kind of see how this continues to emerge we've got um i think ulu as well i'm not sure if you're familiar with ulu so there there's a company that are doing an algae based yarn so um there's some really exciting stuff that started popping up in australia and um yeah, I can't wait to continue to see more of it happen. Um, is there anything else that we'd like to have a discussion about or should we 
open it up to see if anyone would like to ask any questions at all to anyone on the panel or has a perspective they'd like to share on anything at all. We're very open to have a chat. You've got a very good panel of awesome humans here. Okay, we have a roving mic just behind you. How good is that? Uh, Mike, um, it's more about like, I totally agree about the awareness pipeline to people starting to get more interested. But I think the thing that I feel like might be a roadblock is the accessibility to it, right? Like, um, as with anything that's like a new frontier, this is going to, this take, this is obviously getting a lot of investment, but the people that will need it or be not able to access it the most are going to be the ones that probably need it the most. So do you guys have any idea on how we can or how that barrier can be removed or like how you foresee like that challenge being faced in the future? I mean, I can quickly chime in on that one and say that um, there are quite a few interesting programs popping up. So Blackbird Giants is an interesting one um, and a couple of different ways in which you can look at sharing your idea and trying to seek support and funding. Um, government grants as well. I would suggest looking at Sustainability Victoria. The, they have a round of grants through the CBIC, I believe, which they look at sort of funding and supporting ideas. Um, otherwise, you're always welcome to come and talk to us. We help people out um, free of charge and just try and support people who are trying to bring their ideas to life. I think it's a this sort of space is really important and interesting. And then, as I said as well, like going on and looking at doing study at um, or consulting one of the... Um, lecturers here on the panel as well about ideas. There's, I think the more you engage and communicate with people in the space, everyone's really happy to support one another because at the end of the day, we need to replace all of these things and we need to make it happen as quick as possible. Um, but in terms of funding, it's just, I, d I wouldn't say that it's easy, right? Um, but there are competitions and prizes that you can kind of pitch for. Um, otherwise, a lot of the startups and people that we know who um, come into the lab, they they have to work another job and then come in out of hours or come in on certain days and we sort of support them. But um, I don't know, in terms of finding funny to, money to support these things, it is quite inhibitory, hence the why we're sort of looking at creating co-working space to be able to support people wanting to do bio-based and bio-inspired design. Can I add something to that as well? So like, I think you're totally right. Like, um, sustainability is a privileged conversation and it's not accessible to everyone. Um, Research and innovation is expensive, and the first time products reach market, usually they're quite expensive, uh, and that's really an issue. Uh, uh, there's no solution to that except potentially like a, a full system change, uh, but that's potentially uh, outside of the scope of what we, we can influence at our levels. Um, but I do agree with you, like it, it's a real issue. Like in my own work, for example, like uh, it, it's also part of the of the design innovation process. Uh, you work with a desirability to start with. Um, what do consumers want? Like, uh, what do consumers need, more importantly, than want? Um, then you work like the, the feasibility. Uh, can we actually make this happen? Uh, and that's still very expensive. So I'm, I'm at that stage at the moment in my research with uh, the hospital project that I mentioned. We are like on our way to developing these like, scrubs that are amazing. Uh, they're fully sustainable, they're 3D knitted, uh, there's no seam, they're so comfortable. Um, it's just like digital fabrication, but it's still quite expensive. So what's the next step is to work out the viability. Uh, and that's like a, a big, big challenge for every single project out there, may it be a biodesign project or not. But I do agree that in general, uh, sustainability is a privileged conversation and a lot of people are, are, are don't have the mean to, uh, to be able to afford these kind of solutions um, that, that are emerging. But do you mean accessible by 
consumer or designer or consumer like so more on that front um i think like that obviously takes a lot of rallying in terms of legislation and making it more affordable for the masses and stuff but I just try to think of like how yeah but we live in a capitalist yeah. society but yeah yeah that has an interesting sort of uh, uh dichotomy I would say that, for example, in United States, that you can buy kits to change the DNA of your dog, uh, anyone, and it's very cheap. <clears throat> so that kind of thing is happening uh, everywhere, <clears throat> and and that quite scary. That's quite scary if you think that um, anyone would do that. Uh, so accessibility issue is a is a challenging issue, I suppose. That it should be democratized. However. How do we actually um, make it equitable and also uh, uh, ethical? And yeah, well, that's interesting. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Um, I'm really interested in the um, idea of how you scale these things up really, really quickly because. You look at the sale of the climate challenges and waste challenges that we have. Um, just like your thoughts on, you know, have you got some good examples of things that have been scaled up that you look at? And I suppose this, the other question that goes to it is, where does sort of um, Australia sit in the, uh, you know, bio design ecosystem? Are we like at the centre or the periphery and? You know, where is the um, Silicon Valley of, you know, bio design? That's a it's it's a great great question. Um, I wish we were the center. We're working on making it the center. Um, but I feel like, as as per usual, it's where a lot of the money and the resources are. So uh, a lot of it's happening in America. And again, because they're really lax rules, you can just do genetic engineering in your garage. Not very cool. A um, whole bunch of ethical issues. But then Europe is actually quite big in biodesign as well. They're pushing really, really hard for it, um, which makes total sense. Um, there's a lot of humans there and there's a lot of resources. But I think that um, Australia is quite uniquely placed when it comes to biodesign. We have such a, a vast continent of unique um, organisms and species. And obviously, again, then that brings in a whole another concept of like potentially you know not repeating colonialism on a biological level and you know we've got the Nagoya protocol and a few other things to try and engage with it but um, I think Australia is very well placed to be able to capitalize on quite a lot of the amazing um, talent and educational institutions that we have but it's just about the space to be able to support the ideas and helping them scale up so a lot of the um, I had the the privilege of going over to uh, one of the startups in our lab competed in the H&M Global Changemakers Award and won and got flown over to um, Stockholm. Um, so we were over in Sweden and every single one of the companies, doesn't matter if they're from you know, England or Sweden or wherever they're from, um, they all face the same issues, which is having someone like an Adidas come over and be like, I want a thousand tons in like two weeks. And then they're like, well, cool. Do you want to give us some money so that we can build the space and it'll take a year and a half? They're like, no, no, no that's not going to happen. So it's also that because of the current way in which companies relate to material providers and all of that sort of stuff, it's unless they're willing to look to the long term. And again, this is, it's all worldview shifting and changing the ways in which we relate to things and acknowledging the interconnectedness of things. And that, you know, it actually makes a lot of sense in the long term to be able to support these organizations. 
but I think we're slowly getting there in Australia. There is a there is a fair bit of government investment both in Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland as well. Um, but I would say most of the investment in biotech would be New South Wales with Victoria second and then Queensland wanting to spend a lot of money because they're not Victoria or New South Wales. Um, but they're a bit more of a med tech focus, I would say. What are, what are your thoughts? I was just gonna, I don't know, I think it just kind of maybe thinking slightly critically around the whole question itself of like where, where are the centers, I suppose. And I think something that's interesting. <laughs> to, you yeah, interesting to, you know, um, yeah, I think it's kind of important when we're thinking about how can biodesign scale up is to understand how that can take place in very like localized settings. Um, and there's a tendency to kind of situate all the power to kind of North America um, and Europe and those kind of Western centers as having an authority or having the resources to be able to kind of create and invent these exciting new technologies which will go and save the rest of um, the world in less economically developed parts of the world. And an interesting example of that, I think, is um, critiques of, so we talked a little bit around edibility and biodesign food, and one kind of innovation is um, looking at um, growing, yeah, farming basically crickets as a kind of alternative form of protein. And those have been often kind of created in the West and presented as like opportunities to deal with food insecurity. Um, but there's a lot of important kind of research and collectives and NGOs working to sort of explore how, of course, like eating insects has been a practice in lots of parts of the world already. Um, and so not to just sort of see this kind of produce this new kind of saviorism in biodesign by locating all of that power um, in the global north and actually to understand how we can sort of situate some of those centers within the localized settings um, so that things are being created by the people who are using them or from those parts of the world, I guess. I guess that, that kind of is the whole, the whole thing about um, decentralized um, sort of innovation and trying to support things within a local bioregional context um, using place-based materials and things that are, it's like the, the low impact, low, not food mile, material material miles and looking at going, okay, what do we have in, in time and place and how do we how do we utilize that to create things? And that's something that has been going on forever in indigenous cultures. And you look at the um the like what we have here in Australia, like seventy thousand years of connection to country and land and creating everything that's needed with what they've got around them. Um, you know, there is a lot that we can learn just by looking around in our current place and finding ways to creatively innovate with the materials that we have um but yeah it is interesting how that it always comes up and that's the thing with commercialization right is that um currently the model that we're working with is like you have to go to someone with a whole bunch of money to invest in your thing to make it happen so there are some interesting examples or i think is it is it norway where they they have the fund where they look at investing in things to help support um the country as a whole rather than just like you know, having to go to a VC to get money for them, the VC to make money, that model actually, you know, you know exactly what I'm trying to say. The funny thing is like this uh, financial model is financed by oil. Uh. <laughs> yeah. But hey, they have to start somewhere. That's all right. But yeah, this conversation on like centers and like uh, is really interesting because it really plays 
biodesign in the context of a transition to circular and regenerative economies. Because if we look at biodesign by itself, we can repeat the same mistakes. And a classic example of that, like to make it very tangible, is like this amazing company that was uh, set up by uh, two Australians, a couple from WA that I work in Melbourne. Great rap. I don't know if you heard of it. Might be on your Instagram feed. It's all over mine. Uh, <laughs> but they're doing this cling wrap, which is made out of uh, food waste. And instead of like uh, looking for the cheapest waste available in Australia or potentially even overseas, uh, they could have shipped they literally looked for like a local source of waste to make uh, the, the product contextual. And they found this amazing uh, factory in the Dandenong. Uh, I don't know if I'm, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say it, so I won't say names or anything, but um, they, they used the, the, the food waste from this company in order to, product, to produce the, their cling wrap on site with like minimal uh, carbon footprints across the whole supply chain. And that's the power of biodesign. It's like you can actually contextualize every single uh, operation uh, to, 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 to really work to the, the best assets and advantages of, a, of the context in which you work in. So I'm just uh, removing a spider from my being. The beauties of living in Australia. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, we have a small amount of time to, um, maybe we can squeeze in another question if anyone else would like to. Yes, please. Thank you. Um, earlier, Mr. Wines, you mentioned that, for example, polyurethane was a, could be contained in, a, in an alternative product that people could go to. And so my question is for the layman person who's trying their best, what is the best way to actually do better without making mistakes that they might not be aware of are potentially worse alternatives? That's a, it's a great question. First of all, we're always going to make mistakes. Um, that's just part of being human. That's how we learn and adapt and evolve is through making mistakes and going, I'm not going to do that again. So I, I don't think anyone should beat themselves up. I think it's always looking at trying to find ways to be um, less, <laughs> just less bad is, 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 is a good approach to have a look at it. But um, there, as, as Oli mentioned um, before, there's always going to be trade-offs between, um, you know, let's go for... All right, I want to use leather because I, d I don't want to um, wear plastic-based or petroleum-based clothing. You know, okay, well, then that is uh, extinguishing a life to create a product. All right, is that better or worse? Well, it could biodegrade if it's not coated in. So there's, there's always things, doesn't matter where you go, what you look at. Like a lot of the, as we're saying, a lot of the biodesign products currently aren't like bioplastic. Man, isn't, wasn't that the biggest lie to everyone ever we're like oh yeah here's bioplastic this is great it's sustainable and then oh yeah by the way it can't be composted at home and it have to have a commercial you know incinerator and if it gets in the recycling waste it'll ruin the plastic so you can't actually reuse any of it so there it's it's complicated and complex and i think that we we have to just do our best to sense probe sense and respond and navigate uncertainty and just look acknowledge that we're all going to fuck up like that's just part of being human. Um, I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts or feedback on on that and how to navigate this complex terrain. Uh, until all this biomaterial, like until like uh, the economy, like uh, at scale, I think like uh, the best things you could do as an individual, if you can afford it is to purchase goods that are more sustainable than others. Um, they come at a, at a price at the moment, that's, that's true. Like, uh, it's pushed by people that can actually afford the innovation. So that's why we have like Stella McCartney, for example, like uh, driving this in fashion in the UK, or we have BMW, like I just launched like a, uh, they went back to natural latex for their tires. It's amazing, it's still very expensive. Um, being aware, uh, uh, changing your behavior, voting every day with your 
dollars uh, at this stage is potentially like the best thing you can do. Uh, but the products are coming, and and uh, and they're more and more so uh, rapidly invading like our, our our territory, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, it's going to take some time. I'm not sure <laughs> what to do, actually. I guess um, I think the, the, the fact that, that you're asking that question is already a good start. And then uh, it seems like, you know, if you, if you inform yourself, like, for example, when you buy food in a grocery shop, I always look at the ingredients. <laughs> and checking ingredients um, it's essential because you you want to know where it's coming from. You want to know whether there's a strange product, sugar or always corn syrup and all that stuff. That that's a kind of a small start, but I think it's a big step, perhaps. And we know uh, that we have to buy less. We have to keep things longer. We have to you know eat better and we have to sort of all that stuff I guess I'm not other than that I don't know what if there's a no silver bullet it is a <laughs> I want to add something again, sorry. Uh. <laughs> so like, we had a massive conversations about biomaterial and then using design, but like, design can be used as well to use less material, and that's really interesting. At RMIT University, there's a fantastic professor, his name is Mike Z, he's like a, a structural engineer or something like that. And he's actually using parametric design to try to um, design things in a different way uh, that maintains the structural integrity of, uh, let's say, a bridge, uh, but the bridge itself uses a lot less material to start with. So it's not just about having like a, a new a new material palette to use. It's also like how do we use these materials and why? Because like as we talked about before, like th there's no silver bullets to to protect the environment and uh, and and to to lend into these like sustainable uh, futures. It's like uh, there's a lot of these different strategies that need to be used in order to like reach that state. So uh, a new material palette is one. Redesigning so that we use less is another one. Improving traceability tools of resources. Uh, refusing to buy, like degrowth is another one. Uh, repair, reuse, uh, upcycle. Um, can we rot material that are organic instead of throwing them in landfill? Can we actually also like put in place um, um, some system so we can rest resources and are deliberately not use the world waste uh, because every waste is a resource? So can we rest resources for a time being so that we find solution to use them after? Uh, there's like plenty of strategies there uh, to to be used. Thank you. We've gone over. I appreciate it. But I would I will finish it with just saying, um, live the questions and keep asking why. And I think that's a really important thing for all of us, like continually to question um, everything uh, and especially the materials that we're using. Um, so that is everything. Um, thanks so much, guys, for coming along to the conversation. We appreciate you coming down, as I said, on Valentine's Day. Um, yeah, I feel very loved and everyone on the panel feels very loved. So thanks so much. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll see some of you again soon. You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.